Sometimes your greatest Christmas gifts are the most insignificant gifts. Years ago, 1981, when I was a freshman, first-year student at Dallas Seminary, Liz and I just got married. I was 22 years old, and my dad came, had to fly out to South Carolina to see his mother who was dying, and she passed away, my grandma Lily. And my dad, as I've told you, had 10 sisters, and he was the only boy, so... Um, he uh, was about, I don't know, he's about number seven, I think, something like that. So uh, poor family, a uh, little tiny house with 11 children, um, one bathroom, no shower, uh, one sink uh, for uh, 10 girls. Um, I don't know how my dad did that. It just <laughs> blows my mind. But uh, so I, w- uh, I was the last boy with the family name because uh, my dad, you know, there's only one boy. So for all those years, I was really close to my grandma uh, because I had the family name, because all the girls were going to get you know married and change their names, so I was really close to her. When she uh, died, um, you know, when you're a kid, you don't realize that your grandparents might be poor, because uh, I never did. All the years I drove across the states to see my grandma, I never knew she was poor until I was an older man, married, and went went there, um, and was shocked to see. Uh, as a kid, you don't see that, but as a man, I did. So that's why this little card here, uh, one of my dad's sisters back in 1981 cut this out of a piece of a a file folder, green file folder, and then stuck a little uh, metal pin through it to hold it together. And the 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 10 sisters sent this to me in 1981 for Christmas. Uh, My grandmother had died in September, so they sent this to me. So when I got it uh, in seminary, uh, I thought, wow, this is an interesting little gift and insignificant, and so I opened it up. And on the left-hand side, it says Lily Roberts, which is my grandmother's maiden name, Baker. Um, she was born September the 21st, 1897. Uh, she died September the 23rd, 1981. On the right-hand side, it says in big, bold letters, Merry Christmas. And then taped to it were seven dimes. And it said, to Marty, from Grandma Lily. I don't think I've ever even showed that to anybody. It's too emotional. 70 cents. That's what she gave me for Christmas when she died. 70 cents. That might as well have been $70 million. Those dimes are at home on my desk. Um, but that's an insignificant gift to, to most people, right? But, but what, was my, what was my grandmother telling me through the 70 cents? Honey, this is basically all I've got. And I love you, so Merry Christmas. Unbelievable. We could just stop the sermon right there. Yeah, and go to Spartans and... Yeah. <laughs> but we can't. I have more to say. So when you think about that, I, I think about that and how important that is for me. And I've, I, you know, I, uh, you know, I've had that for all these years uh, in my office at home, um, along with my grandma's Bible and everything and her picture from... You know how those old pictures from the 1800s look? Early 1900s, real grainy. And those people never smiled. Yeah. Uh, but she was a very happy lady. Um, but when I think about an insignificant gift like that, and I look at biblical prophecy, when you look at biblical prophecy, um, starting like, as we have in Genesis, uh, it looks insignificant. It doesn't look like much. It just, you know, it's something you just like breeze over that. But when you start studying it, you start analyzing it, you, you step back and you're like, whoa, this is totally significant when you understand what it is. And so uh, that's what we're doing is looking at the prophecies as we move through the uh, books of the Old Testament uh, of 
Christ, his, uh, what he was going to do when he got here, why he was coming. Uh, and when you look at these uh, through progressive revelation, it, they don't look that spectacular until you start linking all the dots together. And then you as a Christian say, wow, God had a plan to redeem mankind and to bring in the king of kings. And it's no greater thing but to know him. So what has he said? We need to review. Uh, those insignificant prophecies, Genesis 3, 14, and 15, uh, God promised us that a seed would come one day and deal with the devil and our sin problem. Uh, the seed came. His name was Jesus. His name in Hebrew, Yeshua, means to be the Savior. And so he came to deal with the devil and sin on the cross uh, and in an empty tomb. Uh, but it just took a couple thousand years for God to fulfill his plan. Genesis 12, God said he was going to bring the promised seed through the line of Abraham, uh, who lived in uh, Ur of the Chaldees, which is kind of at the, the northern end of the Persian Gulf, uh, which is modern-day Iraq. And so the Lord came from that area, brought his man from that area, and he formed a nation through him, uh, through Abraham, and promised him that he would make him a great people and that his nation, this Israelite nation, would in turn bless the world. That was Genesis 12. Uh, in Genesis 49, verses 8 to 12, which we looked at last week, uh, God narrows down uh, his insignificant seeming prophecies uh, to tell us, uh, by the way, the seed's not going to only come through uh, the line of Adam, uh, the, the, the line of Israel, but he's going to come through the tribe of Judah within, within inside the nation of Israel. And so what we saw last week is that uh, great tribe was the great militaristic tribe. They were the great fighters in Israel. They always went into the battle first. Um, they were uh, the one through which the king of kings would come. So God's narrowing down the coming of the king and King Jesus. And, and why does he do this? Well, he does it to give us hope. Because when you look at uh, fulfilled prophecy, it gives you great hope that there is a God. He has spoken, and he has spoken most clearly. Uh, have you seen the recent pictures of the, from the telescope that they have released yesterday where they have found uh, galaxies, uh, the farthest out galaxies they've ever seen, and that the light from those galaxy, galaxies uh, took 13.4 billion years to reach us? Huh? I told this to my wife last night. She's, she's like, what are you talking about? Well, you know, light's traveling 186,000 miles per second. And it took 13.4 billion years to get here. What does that tell you? You know, I, I, I look at that. This is, I, this is not in my sermon notes, but sorry for the addition. But I just look at that and I think the greatness of God. He gave us minds to investigate, to see his magnificence and his power. And on all of that, on one little blue planet is us. Isn't that amazing? You know? And so a God that great, I would just submit to you that the, there's nothing going to stop him from fulfilling all of his plan concerning the seed. Nothing. Nothing's going to stop him. And so when you look at uh, God fulfilling his plan uh, through prophecy, uh, the next big prophecy is in Numbers chapter 24. Uh, Numbers 24 is part of a, a section of oracles from the prophet Balaam. Uh, and if you read those prophecies, uh, uh, they're, they're most unusual. But it, Chapter 24 contains a great messianic prophecy, but before we look at it, this is going to take me a few minutes to get to what I want to say, probably the longest ever since I got here 14 years ago. <laughs> I apologize, but I can't get to the prophecy unless I leave the contextual groundwork because you won't appreciate it unless I do that. So are you with me? So if you wonder, like, where is he going? I am laying the groundwork for what we're going to talk about. Okay, so you ready? All right, so... Let's do a little history of the context of Numbers chapter 24. So um, 
the, there was a divinely ordered 40-year uh, wilderness wanderings because of the sin of the people. When they sent the 12 spies out to view the land, uh, uh, Tim came back and said, we can't take it. And Joshua and Caleb said, it's ours for the taking. God's with us. So the Israelites would wander for 40 years in the wilderness until all of those people from that generation died. Amazing. God took them all out because of unbelief. He rose up another generation, which means there's about 2 million Jews who were on the plains of Moab. And I've, I've been there many times. The plains of Moab, just across the Jordan River, as you're looking at what is um, now modern-day Jordan. So you have the mountains um, uh, that run along the, the edge of the Jordan River, east of the Jordan River. And down on the ground is the plains of Moab. And so that's where the Israelites are encamped. They're on the northern end of the Dead Sea at a place called Shittim. They are about ready to invade the promised land. And we know from reading the scriptures that God's going to part the waters of the Jordan River at flood tide and then dry up the ground instantly to allow them to walk over. So this is an amazing time. So there, two million Jews of a new generation are gathered there uh, in tribal formation, waiting for God to do what he has called them to do. And what he calls them to do uh, is to attack the people that are on that side of the Jordan, the eastern side of the Jordan, because he's going to give that land to them as part of the land of promise. So they, a ragtag group of slaves, remember they were Egyptian slaves for over 400 years. They're not warriors, but God empowered them to fight. And so they take on the feared forces of the Amorites, uh, when you read Numbers 21, uh, verses 21 to 32, and they wipe out the Amorites, which is like just jaw-dropping from the day and age. Then they're going to travel north up to, uh, uh, closer to the Bekaa Valley, which is where I take my tour groups. Uh, it's a very beautiful, very formerly volcanic, very rich, very green, gorgeous land. Uh, it was ruled by Og, king of Bashan. Uh, he's one of the sons of Anak, so he's, he's tall like Goliath was tall. Who would want to fight a guy 12 to 13 feet tall? This is him. Uh, he's also called uh, a Zazuman in Deuteronomy 3 is another name for uh, those particular tall people. They took him out. Not only did they take him out, they took 60 fortified cities. These were former slaves. So when uh, King Balak, uh, king of Moab, caught wind of these, these slaves did what? They took out the Amorites and they took out Og, king of Bashan? Are you kidding me? Uh, he was not too excited. In fact, his knees were probably shaking and knocking together when he heard about this. And so realizing he couldn't take out Israel on the battlefield, he decided to use black arts to take them out. Black arts, witchcraft. And so what he did is he wanted to find the best sorcerer money could buy to curse them. Because the whole motif was, if you could control the primordial realm, which the ancients believed uh, was the dimension over the earth where the, the gods were, which are really demons, they could control those demons by certain activities and get them to attack your enemy. So there's one scholar explains curses this way. It says, curses were connected with a series of mysterious manipulations. Sometimes they would read chicken entrails and do all kinds of weird things. Reinforced by the incantations pronounced in the required tone whose purpose is to separate an individual group or nation from its God. Good luck on that one. He said, this will reduce its vitality and make it a victim of the sinister forces and the demons that always lie in wait to assail man, torturing and finally destroying him when he lacks divine protection. So if you can just get the demonic rail to get in between the Israelites and their God, we can take them out. Don't you know God looked down from heaven and just laughed? Read Psalm, read Psalm 37 sometime. Uh, I had to memorize it for extra points in an Old Testament class I took in college, but just read it. Fret not because of evildoers, neither be thou envious of against the workers of iniquity. Why? God laughs at them from heaven. 
they, they can't thwart his plan. So realize, when you look at Genesis 3.15, the coming of the seed, the, the seed will come and he will come through the Israelite nation. God's going to bless that nation, not curse that nation. So if you're going to go hire a sorcerer to curse them, not going to be successful. Point is, nothing or no one can stop God's purposes. Do you, you hear me? I mean, I could just stop right here, but I won't. But <laughs> nothing can thwart the purposes of God. Nothing. So I don't know how you feel about any geopolitical situation, any ideology, any godless worldview, anything. No matter how many people are, are involved in it, you, God looks down from heaven and laughs. Because you cannot stop what God's going to do. What's he going to do? I'm going to send the seed first to be the Savior. And then that seed, according to Genesis 49, 8 to 12, is going to become Shiloh, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings. He came the first time to redeem us, give us the opportunity for redemption. The second time he comes as the King of Kings. I, I have to ask you, are you going to be ready for his second arrival? And are you ready for, well, when he comes for you the next time? So I'm ready. So what did, uh, to get back to my sermon, so what did Balak do? He hires a guy named Balaam. Balaam. So ba remember, I'm still laying the foundation. I got to the sermon yet. Still with me? Balaam, who is he? Uh, Balaam, uh, if you study Balaam, he's, he lives where, from what the scriptures say, uh, is a place near the river. If you look at the concept of the river as it's used in the Old Testament, it refers predominantly to um, the Euphrates River. What does that mean? That means they're in Moab, which is on the uh, southeastern side of the Dead Sea, in the middle. It's, it's a godforsaken land. I've been there as well. Uh, there's like 1% trees. It's sand. This is where they are. Uh, and he, he contracts this man to come be a sorcerer for him. Uh, and he's going to pay him money to do it. But he, he's 550 miles away. He hires the best sorcerer money can buy. He, he wants to know, who can curse these Israelites? Well, we heard Balaam's got a really good track record with the demonic realm. So he sends, if you study, now bear in mind, are you going to be able, can't you just see the battle between good and evil, light and darkness, prophesied in Genesis 3.15, played out here? You would think the devil would tell Balaam, his men, don't even go for it. It's not going to work. But Balaam goes for it. And so a, a delegation arrives from a King Balak and offers him the money and the opportunity to come curse the Jews. And Balak, all of a sudden, the sorcerer, it's kind of ironic, gets a verbal word from God. And God tells him, don't do it. Don't even think about doing it. I bless these people. I'm not going to curse them. So he sent the delegation back home. They had to travel how far? 550 miles. Imagine the time it took. Then he, the King Balak's so desperate. He's like, I got to have that guy. He sends a bigger delegation. Uh, the bigger, he tells them the same thing. I, can't, I have heard from the living God told me I can't go and curse these people. Uh, then God intervenes and says, I tell you what, I'll let you go. Go down there, one proviso. Whatever you say cannot curse my people. I'm going to bless them. I'm not going to curse them. So anytime you open your mouth, it has to be to bless Israel, not curse Israel. Anything going to stop God's purposes? No. Again, you would think the devil would have told his sorcerer, don't even think of going. But he went. Now, somewhere along the way, remember, we're still building the foundation. You still with me? So he, on his way there, he's riding a donkey. Who would want to ride a donkey 550 miles? Have you ever ridden a donkey? They are, n it's not like a beamer. <laughs> so he's riding this donkey. And we know that he gets to a certain mountain pass. And all of a sudden, the donkey goes crazy. You see, that's a, that's a great story. Donkey goes psycho, won't go forward, won't, scared to death through this little mountain pass. 
Uh, and, he, and Balaam starts beating the donkey. You know the story? Starts beating the donkey. And finally, God says, I'm going to allow the donkey to talk. Imagine if your donkey started talking to you. <laughs> hey, buddy, you know. Uh, and so they have this conversation, this shouting match between the, the sorcerer and the donkey. And what's the donkey tell him? There's an angel in front of me. I can't go through that pass. Now, it is called the angel of the Lord, which is a whole other sermon. The angel of the Lord, that particular phrase in Hebrew, only refers to the pre-incarnate Christ. That's a whole other sermon. This is the pre-incarnate Christ blocking the way of the sorcerer. Who can see the, the angel? The donkey. <laughs> Who can't see him? The sorcerer. Who should have seen into the next realm? The sorcerer, not the donkey. Don't tell me the Bible's boring when you're reading it. I mean, I'm like, this is amazing. And finally, God allows the uh, prophet to see into the next dimension, to see the angel. And why was, why was God mad at him at this point? Well, scholars theorize that Balaam had shifted his motivation for going from, I won't take money to, wow, that's a lot of money. And he wants to get paid. And so how did Balaam respond? Well, he beats the donkey. Then, he res- then when he hears from the donkey, and then he actually sees the angel. Numbers 22, he repents of his sin for beating the donkey. And then he continues on his journey. When he gets down to Moab, Balaam, uh, who's whom we were speaking about, is taken by uh, King Barak, ba- Balak to three mountainous locations on the southern edge of the Sea of uh, uh, Dead Sea. And from those three locations, he's given three opportunities to curse Israel down below. So the thing is, if you can see them, you can curse them. And so he takes him to three locations, uh, Bamoth Baal, Pishkah uh, Peak, and Mount Peor. And each time he moves up, he has seven altars with seven uh, rams they're going to sacrifice. And he's got this huge sacrificial thing on these mountaintops because they believe the higher up you got on a mountain, the closer you were to the gods or the demons. And if you did something like slay animals, it aroused the spirits to then act in your behalf. Well, it didn't work. Because here's, here's a chart of what happened. Remember, I'm still laying the foundation. I'm, prophecy number one that came out of his mouth, positive or negative? Positive. He gets up, thus saith the Lord. Israel is going to be a vast people. And they're they're going to be blessed of God. If you're, if you're paying for this guy, you're thinking to yourself, hey, 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 hey you just, uh, I just spent a bunch of money getting two delegations to get you down here. This is coming out of your mouth? Uh, that's what he said. Prophecy number two. Uh, thus saith the Lord, Israel, like a lion, will be victors no matter what. If you're the king paying for this, you're thinking, what is your problem? You're a sorcerer. Yeah, I don't know, but every time I open my mouth, out comes blessing. <laughs> Prophecy number three, number 24. He says, uh, it's kind of like a repeat of the other one. Israel, like a lion, is going to dominate the nations globally one day. And they're not only going to defeat Moab, they're going to defeat the nations of the planet. Why? Because uh, a lion's coming. What's that sound like? Genesis, it's trivia time. 49 verses 8 to 12. Lion will come from the tribe of Judah. Huh? That's, that's Jesus. So if you are the king, you're completely frustrated. So we're getting down to what I want to talk about this morning. Uh, because... Uh, the king is angry at, 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 the, at the prophet, this, uh, this sorcerer. And so it says in verse 10 that Balak's anger burned against Balaam, uh, and he struck his hands together in total disbelief. And Balak said to Balaam, quote, this is like an understatement, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you persisted in blessing them, not once, not twice, three times in a row. Are you kidding me? Now, th- now here's the thing. 
just as a side note, truth is bothersome sometimes. Because you might hear truth, and it's, like, it's not like what you wanted to hear. See, the king is paying for the sorcerer to tell him some things about what a sorcerer can do to curse his enemies. But the truth is, the, the sorcerer is telling him, the living God is not going to curse these people. He's going to bless them no matter what I say, no matter how much money you get me. This is the truth, and the king doesn't want to hear it. You ever ran into anybody that didn't want to hear the truth? You know, the truth is the greatest thing that you can hear. But in our day and ages, you start hearing the truth is, I need to go to a safe place. No, 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 no. You need to go to an open place and be open to the truth that God wants to give to you because the truth can definitely set you free when you come to know Jesus as the Messiah. So in verse 13, it says, uh, uh, Balaam responds. And this is so funny. Though Balak were to give me a house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything contrary to the command of the Lord, either good or bad of my own accord. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. He tells him, look, I'm a sorcerer. This is what I do for a living. You can give me all the money that your country has. And out of my mouth concerning Israel, it's only going to be a blessing. I can't stop myself. Don't you find this ironic? Remember, imagine if you could see in the demonic realm what devil and his minions are doing. Imagine the devil having a conversation with whatever minions attached. You know, what is your problem? Can't you get him to curse them? No, no, Lord. Can't do it. See, do you think anybody's going to sidetrack God from fulfilling his plan? No. No, he's controlling even a sorcerer. Now, now we're to the sermon. That's the intro. I told you it was long. I just told you. But what's the point? Well, the point is when you get to, well, the last prophecy, uh, you find this motif. What's the motif? God will bless the world through the Israel's ultimate king. Now, bear in mind how the, how the Lord promises to do this. Number one, first coming, he comes as the as the Savior. He comes as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He goes to the cross. He bears our sin. He rises the third day, victorious over sin and death. That's the first coming. That, that's why he came at Christmas, to be that Savior. But it's two-part prophecy that the next time he comes, he comes as King of Kings and sets up a kingdom. So he's going to prophesy about that. Two things. Number one, we, we're going to see it, the King's road to blessing is quite clear. It's very clear. Look at what he says in verse 14. In his He's going to, well, I forgot to say, he's going to give the king who holds the power of life and death, who could have killed him right on the spot. He's so mad at him. He's going to tell him, basically, I'm going to give you a freebie. It's a free prophecy. And it's, well, it's, a, it's, it's, it's about Israel, and it's, it's good news about them, bad news about you. <laughs> this is, look, verse 14. Now, behold, I'm going to, I'm, I am going to my people you know, where I came from, come and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. It's not going to be good for you. Uh, and he took up his discourse and he said, quote, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of man whose eye is open. You know, God opened my eye to see into his dimension. The oracle of him who hears the word of God. I heard and I saw from God and knows the knowledge of the most high who sees the vision of the almighty falling down. That's what he did as the as the sorcerer, yet having my eyes uncovered. So what is he, what's he saying? Let me, let me tell you. God gave me some insight concerning Israel, and I saw it into the future, and I heard it from God's mouth. Now, what did he say? Well, he says in verse 14, what's going to happen to you and your people in the days to come? Now, in the days to come is a prepositional phrase, which might mean nothing to you because you don't like prepositions but you go to a church where the pastor loves prepositions. So you have to ask yourself, where in the Old Testament does that precise 
prepositional phrase occur and is it significant? So I looked up those prepositional phrases in the Torah and in the prophets. It took me a while. But I will share with you, when that phrase occurs, it has a near occurrence and a far occurrence. Near occurrence is what's going to happen in, the, in close proximity time-wise. And far occurrence is what's going to happen down the halls of time. And for sake of time, I want to show you a far usage of the exact same terminology in Hebrew. It's in Isaiah chapter 2 concerning the Messiah when he arrives. Next. What's Isaiah say? Uh, it's the word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. What he see? Now, it will come about in the last days, and then there's that prepositional phrase uh, uh, in Hebrew, reading from right to left. Uh, it will come to pass in, in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is, where the temple is, or was, will be established as the chief of mountains and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream unto it. So God, when he comes back, when the Lord comes back, he's going to take Mount Zion, where the, the temple mount is, he's going to raise it to be the tallest mountain in all the planet and change the topography of the whole planet. Who would want to miss that? Anyway, back to my sermon. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Why? That he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Imagine when the world is reigned over by Jesus from Jerusalem and you can travel there on a vacation to go learn from his feet. Who's going to want to go to Hawaii? You can go to Jerusalem and sit at the feet of Jesus and learn. It says, for the law will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations. He will render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against the nation. Never again will they learn war. Because you have to learn war, don't you? Because you have to go to boot camp. You have to learn hand-to-hand -hand combat, how to throw a grenade, rifle, how to shoot, etc. You go to war college, etc. When Jesus shows up, his name is Shiloh. He brings rest because he's the Prince of Peace. Came the first time to save you and deal with your sin problem, but you got to come to him and repent, and he redeems you. Second time, he's coming back to fulfill Isaiah too. That prepositional phrase is highly significant. How's he going to create peace? Well, I'll, I'll give you another usage of the preposition. It's used in Ezekiel 38, which is a great passage. Ezekiel 38. It says, uh, you will come against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will come about in the last days, same Hebrew phrase, that I shall bring against uh, you, you against my land in order that the nations may know me and, and when I am sanctified uh, uh, through you before their eyes. God, if you study Ezekiel 38, and I can't get into the com complexities of it, I'll just summarize it this way. In the middle of the tribulation, when Israel is at peace, they signed a peace treaty with the Antichrist and it's a seven-year tribulation, in the middle of it, they're attacked from the north by Russia and their allies. And if you can't see this being set up today, I don't know what paper you're reading. They are massing to do this. They're going to attack them when they sign a peace treaty in the middle of the tribulation. When they descend on the, on the, in the Golan Height Mountains to come down and attack Israel, read Ezekiel 38. God himself is going to take them out. Why? He's not going to curse Israel. He's going to bless Israel. Do you see? That prepositional phrase is highly significant because it occurs in the writings of the prophets, which detail what the Messiah will do when he comes back. Again, are you prepared to meet him today by coming to the cross and being saved? And if you're his child, you're his saint. When he comes for you, he'll take you to heaven. But one day, he'll bring you to his kingdom when he sets up that kingdom where he'll reign in Jerusalem as prophesied. Second thing. He says the, the king's rise to blessing is quite clear. 
He says, I see him, but not now. Uh, I behold him, uh, not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and, and tear down the sons of Seth. Wow. Uh, how does the Lord, uh, how does he do what he does? Well, he, he, he's speaking through the, the sorcerer here, uh, and he says, um, sorcerer says, I, I could see him down the halls of time. God allowed me to see. God's outside of time and space. He's allowed me to see this king that's coming, but, but he's like a star. Can you stop the rise of a star? Mm, not really. As the earth rotates, you, you can't stop it. And he says, this coming one is, is a star of a, of a great order because it's not just a normal star. It's a star that's going to be able to rise in Israel as a great power. And this particular star is going to have a scepter. Now, there's two options in Hebrew for the word for scepter. It can either be the long shaft that the king used, that sat between his feet and rested on his shoulder as he gave his decrees from his throne, or it's a short, uh, uh, like a battle axe that a king would use in battle. But what does it say? Well, to understand this, you have to also understand the word here when it talks about uh, that this star shall come forth. The word for coming forth in Hebrew is darak. And if you look up the word usage for Darak to come forth, it's used of warriors going to battle. This is significant. When Jesus returns, how does he create peace? He goes to war with the devil and his minions and all of the nations of the world that are gathered against Israel in the Valley of Armageddon to wipe out Israel. And then Jesus shows up. Just read Zechariah chapter 14. It tells you about it. Jesus shows up. And he deals with the forces of evil and takes them out. Why? Because he's the star. He's the rising star. Think of a star, the brilliance of a star, the glory of a star. How did the Magi wind up at the feet of Jesus as a babe anyway? They were following a what? A star. The glory of a star. Not by coincidence, because it's prophesied that there was a star rising in Israel, and that star was going to be a king who would take out the nations. The rest of that prophecy is just how he will take out the nations that oppose him, but he will bless Israel. What's interesting is early Judaism, uh, Targum Ankelos, which is the Aramaic translation of the, of, the, of the Torah, written around 2 AD, says this about this verse. This is Jewish writing. It says this, quote, when a mighty king of Jacob's house will reign and the Messiah will be magnified, even the Jews saw this passage as messianic. Uh, there's another Targum. Uh, targum is the Hebrew word for translation. So there's a Targum, Jonathan. It's the Babylonian Aramaic version of the prophets or the Nevi'im. Here's how they read this verse. Quote, when there shall, this verse is about when there will be one who will reign like a strong king of the house of Jacob and the Messiah will be anointed and a strong scepter shall be coming from Israel. Even they in their writings identify this prophecy from Balaam's lips as messianic Jesus because he's the king of kings from the tribe of Judah. He came. Now, what is interesting, uh, historically speaking, uh, Israel's last fight for freedom uh, was from 132 to 136 AD. It was led by a man named Simon Bar Kosiba. They thought he was the Messiah. He thought he was the Messiah. So they re he renamed himself Simon Bar Kokhba, son of the star. Only problem was in AD, AD 136, the Romans killed him. Was he the Messiah? Oh. No, because the Messiah had already come. And they missed him the first time he came. And he was calling out to them to be redeemed. But they did have the motif down that the Messiah was going to come and set up a kingdom. It just wasn't 
this man, it was the God-man Jesus. Which all of this leads to two things. Question one, question for Christmas. Have you permitted the prophesied king of kings to be your king of kings? And if you have not, what are you waiting for? And will your questions that you have be sufficient for you when you miss him when he comes in eternity? Better to bow before him today and entrust him as savior and he will save you. That's what he came for the first time. The second thing is for Christians, which is quite clear. Do you have hope this Christmas? I do. Now, I'll be honest and tell you there's times I get depressed when I read the news and I get discouraged, etc., because I hate to watch evil advance. But always behind the scenes in my heart is an excitement. What's the excitement? King's coming because the star is going to rise and nothing is going to stop what God's going to do. There's a song that we uh, have in a, in a hymnal uh, called, Thou Didst Leave Thy Throne. I'll leave you with the final verse. When the heavens shall ring and the angels sing at thy coming to victory, let thy voice call me home, saying, what? Yet there is room. There's room at my side for thee. My heart shall rejoice, Lord Jesus, when thou comest and callest for me. I'm ready for him to call my name. You ready for him to call your name? Let's pray. God, thank you just for the clarity as well as the mystery of these ancient prophecies. Because as we see them played out, that which is seemingly insignificant is completely significant when we see that they point to the Messiah, Jesus. And with great specificity, he fulfills them to the letter. We look now to your second coming, but we relish and rejoice in your first coming as we look at Christmas this year. And we pray for those who need to make a decision about the King of Kings and the Savior for their own life. In Jesus' name, amen.